Hey, it's David Woodwell. Welcome to another episode of Pennsylvania Legacies, the Pennsylvania Environmental Council's podcast series talking with characters, individuals, and others working for conservation and environmental protection in and around Pennsylvania. And today we are honored to have with us Mark Allen Hughes, who is the director of the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, where he is the founding director or executive director. Uh, and thank you for being with us today. David, it's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. This is fun. Well, you have a very eclectic background as well. Uh, you are a doctor, officially. And you were actually, among all the other things you've done, like the sustainability man in the city of Philadelphia, uh, you also were probably one of the younger professors at Princeton at the age of 25. Uh, so how did you get here? I mean, you're now doing energy policy. You've done financing with stimulus money. You've done all this stuff. What drives you? Well, you know, I'm not sure drive is the right verb. I actually think of myself as really more of a counterpuncher than a puncher, right? Uh, the uh, things, you know, my phone tends to ring or uh, something kind of comes along and I try to take advantage of it. So a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. Maybe I'll concede a little bit of uh, fortune favors the prepared, but I really can't account for any preparation that I've ever really taken on. All right, so if you're taking the boxing analogies, you're not rope-a-dope, though. You're getting in there and causing problems, mixing it up early, close fighting, uh, and you've done that in the city. You're doing that in climate and energy now. How did you get to the city stuff? What was that all about? Well, the city stuff actually really started with a newspaper column. So I always, you know, one of my favorite movies is His Girl Friday, right? And so I always had the fully romantic vision of newspaper life and being a kind of a Bigfoot metro columnist, you know, with a press pass tucked into my hat and all of that. And so I had an opportunity. I've always kind of written uh, op-eds, right, that as a academic or as a think tank guy – you know, the, the continuing, in some ways, it's like one of the most consistent legacies that I think we've got available to us over the last hundred years about how do you influence, right? A kind of a question we're always pondering in our game. And the op-ed, although it has distri different distribution channels, you know, than it used to have perhaps, and it's no longer about getting to the top of the media food chain and ultimately getting into the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or something with your, with your op-ed, it gets out differently now, but there's still something about that 500 words, right? An argument that begins and ends, an argument that's addressed not just to experts or people who already have an opinion, but at least to some degree to people who have never even thought about a problem before and to try to capture them and get their attention and kind of leave them with something that they go talk to other people about. The format is still fantastic, right? So I've always loved that op-ed thing and have typically written them at different jobs I've had. And then by a certain kind of quirk, uh, I was asked by the Philadelphia Daily News, right? Not the broadsheet, but the tabloid, right, in my hometown, and which is fantastic, right? Because again, part of what's fun and I think potentially effective in so much of the kind of stuff we do is playing against type right, is kind of making the unexpected argument or maybe the argument in the unexpected venue. And so writing for the tabloid was absolutely irresistible. And the editor kind of approached me and um, said, would you like to start writing for us kind of on a more regular basis um, and on an exclusive basis? So again, for an amateur, as soon as some editor starts using the word exclusive <laughs> right. with me, I'm like totally hooked. So I was in 
And I said, well, how often would you like me to write? Because I would usually just send something someplace once or twice or three times a year. And he said, maybe once a month. It would be fine. It would be great. I said, sure, terrific. And I remember that at one point uh, I was uh, about to go on vacation or something, and I just wanted to build up a little stack, you know, so that I could kind of not think about writing for a while. And I sent in three or four uh, columns, and he published them as I sent them in. He published them all like on a weekly basis. And after that, I was so embarrassed that I thought that I couldn't keep up that pace that I became a weekly columnist. And so I wrote about 300 weekly columns over a period of uh, five or six years for the Inquirer. And during that, you know, as I became kind daily of... Daily News or Inquirer? Uh, daily News. Okay, I say so the Inquirer. Oh, yeah, just no, check it. Just no, I'm a yeah, Daily yeah. News guy, right? And so became a little bit of a character. And during the course of that, I mean, and I I was really milking it for all it was worth. I used to, I did in fact have a press pass and I ridiculously used to go into the press box at Philadelphia city council <laughs> meetings, you know, and sit there pretending like I was a real journalist. And the council member who strategically, whose desk sat right next to the press box was a councilman named Michael Nutter, <laughs> who used to routinely lean back into the press box and crack wise with the reporters who were sitting there. So we developed a little bit of a relationship and had a lot of kind of simpatico yeah. um, policy views. And when it came time for him to run for mayor, uh, I was the policy director for the primary campaign. And, you know, Philadelphia being Philadelphia, the primary campaign is the election that matters, right? right. So wrote a bunch of stuff, including uh, a paper that was about environmental sustainability that laid out a bunch of positions, including the how the city should establish an office of sustainability. And then all of a sudden, you know, he goes from fifth or fourth to winning the primary. I, like leave because I never expected him to win, right? It was just going to be kind of a fun thing. So I happily returned to Penn. uh, And then after he went on to win the general and started to set up a government, he reminded me about this position that had been written Mm -hmm. for the administration about the need to establish an office. And so I was very honored to uh, be asked to set that up. And um, it was kind of like the, you know, how... The Greeks, you know, were always much more ferocious than the Persians, right, in classical warfare because as a democracy, all those guys really wanted to do is win and go home, right, because they just wanted – so they were ferocious, right? So I felt a little bit the same way. I really wanted to get back to my native habitat. Uh, So in a year – we set an agenda of crafting a sustainability framework. We called it Greenworks. We set up the office. We established a set of practices, a set of protocols. We did it with all the intensity and urgency of people who really wanted to kind of go back home. And so we got a lot done in a year. And then I was done with my kind of public service experience in that in that phase. It was just a year, but it was super fun. It learned a lot. So, but what's for sustainability for? A city. Sustainability is a word that's gotten a lot of use, misuse, everything. You know, is it? It's the next generations. It's three-legged stools. It's all this stuff. For Philadelphia, what's sustainability mean? That's a great both question and kind of foundation question, right? So I am not one of those people who is at all troubled by the. You can call it flexibility. You can call it vacuity of the word. The word lends itself to use, to co-optation. And for me, 
you know, in an academic setting, that could be a critique. In a political setting, that's just a, that's an asset, right? And so sustainability is an organizing device, right? It's a label for a movement or for an organizing device that can try to align a set of stuff that won't necessarily help each other and be mutually reinforcing, gather them into something that could be turned into a framework, turned into a movement, turned into a bumper sticker, so that you can kind of get a little more oomph out of those parts and their sum than just you know, their simple addition. And so, so I agree. It, it's totally an organizing device. It's probably an organizing label whose time has come and gone. It's probably now being eclipsed by different kinds of organizing labels like resilience or maybe even innovation, right? And it certainly shares lots of qualities with those. And, and so we peeled off one bumper sticker and added another. And so in Philadelphia, the thing, so that just begs the question, so yeah. what are you organizing, right? And so in Philadelphia, exactly your real, I think, in between the lines question, Philadelphia, this was never, the sustainability agenda was never about carbon reduction, it was about poverty reduction, right? It was never about about polar bears, right? It was about flooded basements. I mean, my favorite example is probably, you know, cities, many cities, and it's a perfectly coherent and defensible thing. Many cities might want to talk about uh, uh, street trees, for example, in the context of uh, tree canopy, in the context of urban heat island effect, in the context of, you know, um, even heightened real estate values from the kind of the completeness and the aesthetic quality of, of, of street trees. Those are all fantastic things. In, in Philadelphia, actually in the neighborhood in which where the studio is located, um, a very kind of East End London kind of streetscape where there are very few street trees. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that, some of them historical. But even today, 10 years ago, people in this neighborhood were kind of perhaps unfairly to some degree, but there was plenty of evidence to, to suggest that people would uproot newly planted street trees. Really? They would get rid of them. They resisted them. They, you know, said, questioned them. And the reason for it was street trees in a neighborhood like this, in a neighborhood like much of Philadelphia, you know, people associate them with broken sidewalks, broken sidewalks for which the property owner is liable for any trip and fall that happens because of that, for the nesting of birds and squirrels and what birds like to do on the cars that are parked below for, you know, the leaves that have to be swept, right? So there's lots of things that people associate in a neighborhood like this one with street trees and no discussion of, oh yeah, but the urban heat island effect is going to ever get them distracted from the costs that they associate with those trees. But in a neighborhood like this, what folks really do care about is sewer backups and flooded basements. And if you start to make the connection with constituents about the ability of street trees to absorb so much more stormwater runoff than barren ground, right? And that, that this is actually something that's intended exclusively, don't even think about the other things, that's intended to help manage a problem that lives on this street, people embrace, right? And so that small example writ much larger about what do Philadelphians really care about. I mean, we all, you know, many of us who uh, live and work in the field 
understand some of the stakes in the in the not so distant future, but still in the future from some of the problems that we try to address with sustainability, climate change, and other things. But it's kind of like food. I'm sorry, I'm giving. I tend to give you long answers to extremely sustained questions. But you know, another on this food idea, right? So one of the targets in GreenWorks was about, oh yeah, let's increase access to local food. Fantastic, totally conventional. We were actually the first city to build it in as one of the core targets of its sustainability plan. But still. A total misunderstanding on my part of, you know, again, the sense of urgency. And one of the things that changed during the life of Greenworks uh, as it continued to evolve was let's tweak that target from local food to local and affordable food. Because, you know, the organic certification of food for people for whom the urgent question is sufficient number of calories in the next couple of days you know, if you really want to, and you can build connections between those things, but unless you have that thing that matters most urgently, the flooded basement, what am I going to eat tomorrow? What am I going to serve my kids tomorrow? Uh, how do I prepare these fresh foods that have come from the community gardens, which is all very nice and gotten into the pantry, but still, I know how to open this can, but you know, what, how do I do that? And does that kind of fill me up? You build all those kinds of connections, meet people where they are. That's the necessary condition for getting them out to these larger ideas. And so that okay, is the so, answer. So let me flip you to another larger idea. We mm. talked about local and affordable food, mm. local and affordable energy, mm. and what's happened in Pennsylvania over the last eight years with shale gas, unconventional development of shale gas. Right. The fact that we are right now in a watershed sitting here in South Philly in a watershed where there is a de facto ban on hydraulic fracturing right. in the Delaware Basin. Right. Uh, Philadelphia was an enclave of great opposition to shale gas for a long time, but then came the idea that maybe Philadelphia could benefit from using some of this gas from other parts of the state. And discussions about what's affordable, what's local, what are the impacts of this stuff and you now have a relatively newly writ energy policy center mm. where there are a bunch of them on the western part of the state. Mm. You may be the only one on the eastern part of the state. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so how do you sit here? How do you look at energy issues in a city that's facing all these other questions and you're also looking at having to reduce greenhouse gas emissions but have affordable energy for these same populations and deal with the fact that you now want to take advantage of all this gas, but folks in this watershed don't want the impacts of it. Yeah, that's a Sorry, that's a really simple, easy question. Yeah, answer, that's right? a simple yeah. one. That's a nice, yes, yeah, no. I want to go back to yeah. street trees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but this, this, no, this, this is the $64 question, I think, for many people who um, either follow this issue, and actually, interestingly, for the politics of it, even people who don't <laughs> follow this issue, right? There's, it's, it's very much in the air now, right, about how Pennsylvania is kind of an energy state, and we're at the crossroads of a bunch of decisions. And so I think... Kind of starting in the most general terms, the the what what feels like it's missing is uh, honest conversations around the complexity of these problems that begin and hopefully continue with the understanding that there's a lot to talk about, right? Um, the it's a little bit of a digression, but only a three sentence one, uh, a, a five <laughs> sentence one. You know, everybody you knows are an academic. Everybody, that's yes. right. Uh, everybody knows. You know, Lincoln Stevens and the Shame of the Cities and the great famous fat chapter in Philadelphia um, called "Corrupt and Contented," and that's what everybody cites. But actually, my favorite part of that chapter is a is a is a part that describes Philadelphians as these reformers, right? But what he means by that is 
every 30 years or so, Philadelphians, whether it's the Constitutional Convention or the Bullet Bill or the 1951 New City Charter Commission and so on, every generation they kind of come together and they want to fix this thing. They want to write a new charter. They want to write a constitution. And the reason why they want to do that is because they want to go home and they don't want to govern right? That's who Philadelphians are. Philadelphians are Quakers who love their private lives. And they're not Bostonians who love their civic lives and they don't want to govern. And so what this debilitating capacity that we have is now very much on display regarding the complexity of this energy, these energy choices we have. Nobody really wants to take on a long conversation that's going to be contentious and impolite, perhaps, and, and certainly complicated, and that's going to take just simply a long time to get through it all. So what really feels like it's missing in the most general terms is honest conversation. And that honest conversation probably needs at least two or three kinds of components to it. One, it needs people who kind of really know some stuff to contribute to it, right? So there needs to be some learning. There needs to be some teaching. There needs to be some research. There needs to be some stuff that, you know, people, not so much me, but people who look like me kind of do, you know, this kind of inputs to that conversation. So some table setting needs to happen. But there also needs to be some legitimacy to that conversation. There needs to be, you know, a politics that is asking for, you know, constituencies to really come through and do some work. So you need that element. And then you need to bring the right people together, right, and do some of it. And I think that's really hard. That's actually harder than I thought it was. You know, I thought that was actually something that could be done, you know, kind of kind of relatively quickly. And I now think that it actually takes a little bit more, you know, to really get to the level of competence that Pittsburgh, kind of a greater Pittsburgh or a Houston have to draw no conclusion, no parallels between Philadelphia and those places because yeah. there's important differences between them. But to get to a level of sophistication about these kinds of issues takes generations, right, of institution building and conversation around that. So it's a long right way for Philadelphia to catch up. I don't know that we ever will. I think right. that history may kind of pass us by on some of these things. But you're also in a different position in that this is not – you're not the fuel the, – Getting the fuel out of the ground or wherever is not what's happening here. Right. And that's a big – the extractive side is a very different piece than what you guys have ever experienced. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, the, 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 the piece that, you know, we also once had and have lost has been a lot of the financing and kind of, you know, design and understanding at the kind of – I mean, we lost that to other places as well, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like during the course of the last hundred years, right? Either to kind of New York or largely to Texas. And so, I mean, we've lost some of the elements of this. I think there's a hope that we could actually think of ourselves as on the 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 bot the, the lower end the the higher value end of the chain you know mm -hmm. where we could be kind of midstream and final demand consumers of mm -hmm. some of this opportunity that is only more complicated right um, in some sense you know the extraction end of that looks as as, as contentious as that is and as complicated as that might be. Uh, the downstream aspects mm -hmm. of this, they're just much more fragmented, right? They're, they're much more, there are many more transactions involved and it probably takes a longer time to build it, right? But that's right. Our role can be a little different around this. Um, I think the other big barrier, and this is something that I think is not amenable to conversation. I think one of the things that's also in play here is that we need a, a capacity 
for dealing, and I don't mean in a technical sense, I mean in a very political, civic sense, we need a capacity for dealing with uncertainty and risk, for operational risk. Because for whom? Exactly. Exactly. So right now, people incur risk within which operational management is so deeply embedded, like not getting into a, a, a life-threatening accident on the Schuylkill Expressway, right? Mm-hmm. The, the number, the ballet of operating risk management that happens every time everybody anybody gets on that highway, right? Yeah. And the habituation of the acceptance of that risk, you know, as, hey, it's manageable. Hey, uh, when the worst happens, there's a response. All those kinds of things. The problem with so much of what the energy economy is offering to a region like Philadelphia's has to do with the question of who bears the risk, how could that risk be transferred, how could that risk be, um, you know, how can the liability for that risk be uh, identified and insurance-like or a one-throat-to-choke-like, you know, set of rules and agreements be be put in place. But those, and those risks aren't just about oil trains or yeah. It's about affordability. It's about jobs. Exactly. Social equality. It's about sub- the subsidies that go in to help try to create some safe some of those jobs. Right. The clawback mechanisms. The the expectations that um, people have for if we bear the risk, how are we going to allocate the benefits? Right. The returns to those things. How is it possible? And here, frankly, let me just kind of be specific yeah. about something that was, you know, when the conversation in this region pivoted from, you know, there was, there was much anticipation for the release of a report about, you know, um, the, the potentials of new pipeline investment infrastructure that would actually bring some of these potential benefits, this value, unlock that value, bring it to this region, let it be an input to our ability to revive a manufacturing and petrochemical economy. When that report, you know, was released and the discussion quickly turned to the need for a public authority to back up any shortfall in investors or users' willingness to pay for that new pipeline, which is, of course, the conventional way such mm-hmm. stuff gets financed, that if a pipeline cannot demonstrate sufficient market demand to, in effect, capitalize the costs of constructing that, then the basic position of U.S. public policy is that it shouldn't be built, right? Mm-hmm. Um and when the when the that when that discussion about that very specific and much ballyhooed idea, a new pipeline to bring the gas in, when that conversation pivoted so quickly to the call for public sector backup of any shortfall in financing from the private market for that new capacity, I think the conversation withered in that moment that that suddenly many investors and many promoters started to lose confidence in the in the in the in the reality of this opportunity and it it got very uh it got vague for people about the, the the boosterism of this idea and so i think the region feels a little lost and i think in terms of what to do with, with gas opportunities yeah. yeah and and because i think 
what appeared to have a lot of not maybe not as much momentum as its boosters wanted, but what appeared to have a real logic to it as a business plan suddenly started to look kind of questionable um, in terms of hmm why why do we need that short you know why do we backstop on that shortfall is this this now starts to look less like a but for market opportunity and more like a long lived piece of you know say transportation like mm-hmm. investment that creates a bunch of public benefits that you know we don't need to account we're just going to pay for because we believe in them well, that's fine, props for a public transit system, or maybe even a new highway. Not for a pipeline, but not for a pipe. Because what you talked about throws this next statement on end, or what I was going to talk about, which is that in a lot of places, energy has, in some places, become a code word for climate. But everything you've talked about sort of upends that. So, is energy unbundling energy doesn't take you just to climate at this point? And so, the work you guys are doing at Climate is more than just climate and more than just energy? Yeah, I'll go so far as to say insightful. Um, yeah, no, I think that that, it is about, you know, that these things, the, the, these these labels, these organizing devices, right, they're instrumental, right? They're, they're, they're trying to do some work for you. And for me, the increasing concern around um, climate and, you know, the kind of the existential risk that it represents to the species and then even further i mean the human species even further complicating the fact that that risk is not even around the world so i am totally convinced by the science on that risk i'm totally convinced in fact by the even more specific scientific finding that probably if anything it underbounds the urgency uh that we really need to keep you know Global mean temperature increase since pre over pre-industrial levels to below two degrees Celsius by the end of the century, in, in order to avoid the worst consequences of kind of irreversible and probably accelerating climate change impacts, um, and that in order to meet that two degree goal, we need to by mid-century be at about an eighty percent reduction of current uh, nineteen ninety over nineteen ninety levels, an eighty percent reduction of our annual dump of carbon dioxide equivalent into the atmosphere by the year 2050. And by the end of the century, we need to be close to zero. I totally accept all that stuff. That stuff's exactly right. The problem to me is you can either whistle past the graveyard or you can really think about what it's going to take to meet those kinds of goals. And for state after state and city after city in the U.S. alone, but of course this is happening around the world, for cities and states to be raising their hands saying, I love Stalin more. I am going to do 80 by 50. I am going to do 80 by 50. They're all making these pledges. And I think that is not serious. And I'm not even going to get into whether those pledges are sufficient to meet those two-degree goals. They're clearly not. But I'm talking about a slightly different problem. And it goes back to street trees. It's not enough. I mean, it it cannot be true, right out of the textbook, that if the global goal which nobody, nobody's arguing with. If the global goal is an 80% reduction in our climate emission, in our in our carbon emissions by the year 2050, that that goal translates, monoton- you know, translates consistently into every nation, every state, every city, every neighborhood, every block, every building has the same goal. 
that's not the that can't possibly be the efficient way to approach this problem, right? Different places are going to have to do different things depending on their endowments, on their preferences, on their conditions, on their demographics, on where they're starting. If it's too poor, it needs to have a little more energy budget than if it's already so rich. It can't be the right thing that we all raise our hands and say we're all going to do 80 by 50. Instead, and it can't be the right thing for the smartest people in those places to spend their time saying, okay, is it feasible that we could do 80 by 50? That's not the right question. The question is, what should we be doing, right? What makes sense for our economics and politics and demography in in a place what makes the most sense for the impacts that will mobilize people's behavior, their investment? What's the jobs impact? Who gets those jobs? Who gets those earnings? What does it do to public health? What does it do to our resilience for the climate change impacts that are already baked in and coming? What are the local impacts of a variety of different energy transition pathways? And let's count up the climate impacts of those. But let's not say 80 by 50 and then figure out what we have to do because 80 by 50, it's not clear that that's the right goal for any particular place, say Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. Instead, what can we do that maximizes the local net benefits of our energy transition and then find out what happens to the climate impacts? It's a simple little question, right? It's a simple little question. No, not really. But the last question, because we could do this all day and it would be fun and maybe we'll do this again. What when this is all said and done? What's your impact on this stuff? What are you? We're talking, you know, this is called, there's legacies in the title of this series. What's your legacy? My center's legacy, Penn's legacy. You you decide which way you want to answer that. <laughs> Thank you. Because we all get wrapped up either in ourselves or our places or whatever. So you figure out how you want to. Answer all right, that. let me wrap myself up at my beloved University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for that option. Yes. Um, the. Uh, so I, I think that universities, and this is not simple, right? But the universities have a critical but only potential contribution to make to these, these challenges. Universities can be. They not necessarily are. In fact, one could probably say they rarely are. But universities can be the safe place where these honest conversations and some of this learning can happen. They can also be the courageous place where truth is spoken to power, right? I mean, the advantage of a university is nobody can really get at you, right? And if we don't take that great benefit and put it in the service of speaking truth to power, you know, we really are parasites, right? And so universities can take this security, this safety, this luxury that we have of reading books and thinking about things and then commenting on it and most importantly, listening to other people and kind of learning from them and then try to say the things that other people can't say or that don't have the time to study or all those things. And so universities can really do that and Ben Franklin's, this is the longest time anybody from Penn has ever gone without mentioning Ben Franklin. <laughs> yeah. You know, Ben Franklin's university is exactly the place. Huh, what's that? I don't know. Let's go tie a key onto a kite and go see, go find out what that is. Where people can take a practical kind of commitment to problem solving and be as eggheaded as they want about it, but still tether it to like stuff that really matters to people. Penn is really, I, I love Penn. Penn is really that place. Right. Well, thank you. I look forward to seeing what you do out in the next thunderstorm <laughs> with all this energy stuff and how it goes. Uh, Mark, it's been fantastic uh, today with Mark Allen Hughes, 
in the Kleinman Center at Penn University in Philadelphia. Doing great work. Check out their website. Look them up on the web. And again, Mark, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Sam. It's so much fun. I'm such a big fan of you guys. And and uh, stay tuned for upcoming episodes of this podcast. We look forward to it. Thanks. Pennsylvania's Legacies is a production of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. The views expressed by guests and even by the host are not necessarily those of the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. Our thanks to Regan Curry, who produces the show for us, and also to M Sound Recording Studios, who provides us with studio space in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Check them out. It's a great facility if you need recording work. And look for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council at www.pecpa.org and find many of our projects and policy work there. Thanks for listening.